0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure. And today, we're crossing over to London, UK again, to catch up with Mr. Andrew Croker. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew.
1: Thank you, Marcus.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. I'm looking forward to our conversation here. Uh, We were just chatting a bit before... Uh, was warming up here on what we're doing and maybe some opportunities for us to do some interesting things together here. But before we get into that, you know, I'd love to just quickly do an intro and, and sort of do a bit quite a summary on, on yourself. And even though I haven't quite worked out yet what we're going to be titling this podcast, but you know, it might be something along the line as Mr. Chairman. Because you've been chairman of so many different companies and businesses, and and I really you know see that, as, and I'd love to dig more deeper into it later. Of you know these roles you play there in these companies and and what that means. That's going to be really interesting. But obviously, before you ever became a chairman, you've had a an illustrious career across the industry. You know from the IMGs to Five, Of course, everyone knows you as a co-founder and the, the executive chairman of Perform and the Zone for many years. And because, uh, you know, you had many other roles uh, you played then in between, which we're going to be touching on. And, of course, we'll, we'll, you know, end a bit with your, I guess, current role or one of the current roles, I guess, you're in with Oakville Sports Advisory there, again, as the chairman of the advisory board. So, but uh, before we get back to that, let's start a bit on how your career started. You you were with B-Sky B. Tell us a bit about it. You know, this is we're in the mid or late 80s here now. I guess that must be, you know, B-Sky B must have literally just started, and, and I'm assuming you were one of the first heads of sports there. So take us back to those days and tell us a bit about it.
1: Okay. Well, actually, it, it goes, uh, it's connected, but I have to go back to uh, ancient history, which is 1973. Please. And uh, obviously, I'm going to skip my childhood because I don't think anyone's interested in that. <laughs> but in, in 1973... Uh, I decided to come to London and train to be an accountant and to be an accountant because I couldn't think of anything else. And completely, completely out of nowhere, uh, because my father was, while he had been a professional footballer, he'd also been a pilot, he'd also been an industrialist and a very successful one, he had decided and not told me and in fact didn't tell my mother for quite a long time that he was applying for the job to be uh, General Secretary of, of the FA the English Football Association oh, wow. and I was obviously shocked when I found out that he had got the job and bizarrely he started at Lancaster Gate uh, which was the headquarters of the English FA in the same month that I came to London to, to do my articles and part of his job was that he got an apartment above the FA and because being an articled clerk in accountancy to my annual salary then was 680 pounds. And also, bizarrely, the very, very first audit they sent me on was the International Tennis Federation. So there was obviously some sort of symmetry going on there. And then with my father, I was um, immediately immersed in the world of, of football, football politics and what was going on. And I was in the boardroom of every... Um, you know, I, I was in Arsenal, Chelsea. You know, we were three, three, four times a week with we were, we were the games. So I got to meet everybody in wow. in sport and broadcasting uh, throughout the seventies, and we socialised with them, and it was enormous fun. But you couldn't have had a better uh, a better training, if you like, or background to be involved in uh, in sport. And so then I, uh, when so I qualified, you're, the you're first in your, year, what,
0: early twenties at that time. Oh, let give me. Yeah, a I, was sense 20. 20. I was twenty years old yeah. when I
1: came. So from yeah. the age of twenty. To, 25. I was trained to be accountant, and then I went to work for Labrooks, which is a uh, you know yep, a betting is. business, but also in the racecourse business and uh, social yeah. clubs and everything. So that was a great education. And it was only then when I, I sort of had a lot of friends who were you know they were working in BBC Sport or whatever, or they were in ITB Sport or whatever, and I, I then got involved with a company called Cheerleader Productions, which was the company that. Um, introduced uh, American football to a very unsuspecting audience on Channel 4, which is a new broadcaster um, back in the in the early 80s. Right, and right. that was then how I got into it. And and, oh, and right. the funny thing is, you, you, you mentioned earlier about me being known as the chairman, is that uh, from that day on, I'd i never had a job that uh, I succeeded anybody else. I I'd never filled a role that somebody else had had before me. Everything I've ever done, um, is is a startup. i would never. There's a, there's, there's a great saying. I don't know where it came from. Who said it first? Which is there are finders, binders, and minders, and some people add to that, grinders. But I, uh, and I think you've, you know, it, it's a different skill set. But I was always, you know, a finder. I've I, I just found that I, I, I went out, I met people, I heard about things. You know, I sort saw of stuff sort of happened and I was quite good at binding as well. So I was always a startup guy, but I always relied very heavily on people who actually knew what they were doing and actually how to run a business um, because I was never that brilliant at, you know, minding the shop. I was quite good at, at, you know, getting out on the road and being a road warrior. And so that's really what I did. And and, the, and coming back to your question about you know, uh, BSB, was I was with my father. And my father said, "Have you heard of this BSB?" I said, "Well, not really." And that was when it was just an idea, and the government had decided to give somebody a a, a government-backed monopoly to do DTH television, but, which was a great idea until Rupert Murdoch said he launched an Astra satellite, and suddenly there was a cheap and cheerful alternative, which actually worked technically. Uh, but I went to BSB. Uh, uh, I, and I went and just pitched to them. When my father said, "You should go meet these guys," and you know they had no programming, nothing. Right. And I pitched them the idea of doing two two hours of sport every night. And they said, "Well, that's quite interesting, but why don't you come here and work and do it?" So I became employee number five or seven, I can't remember, oh, wow. in, in uh, at BSB. Right. And I arrived there, and within a month, they'd gone from actually, "Could you do four hours a day?" And then it was. Could you do six hours a day, and then it was? Could you do eight hours a day, and we'll run it three times? So actually, could we have a sports channel? Right. And I, I literally remember getting in, a, you know, a pencil and a ruler, and drawing a weekly schedule, and going to the photocopier and punching fifty-two, and putting it in a ring binder, and looking at this empty file of blank sheets of paper, and we just started to create a. Sports Channel and I, I loved that was one of the most exciting things I ever did because we, you had to go off and meet federations and rights holders and explain who you are, explain what you were going to do and yeah. how viewers were going to see it or not and, um, and that's the what music. we did and, and that effectively became Sky that Murdoch created nearly bankrupted him hmm. and when the infamous so called merger happened, the only piece hmm. of BSB that survived was the Sports Channel because we had uk rights and he'd been depending on eurosport which wasn't really relevant to a uk audience yeah. and so the sports channel which is where vic wakely worked and where martin tyler was and where andy gray was and all the rest of them that became um sky Sports. so I, by that time i had left and gone on to um to do something else so um but, but that was the, that was the history and that's how i sort of really got into certainly sports tv and um, sports media
0: yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, and when you were there and having your father overseas, I'm assuming, still involved in the FA, or um, do you guys ever do a deal uh, with, with them as well? Did you have some of the rights? Yeah, we did. I mean, yeah. we did because the,
1: the, the first rights deals we did were um, – we did the Scottish Premier League. We had the FA, so we had sort of uh, the FA Cup and England teams. Right. Um, so we did, and I, I think I remember him saying at the time, it's it's not a reason, me being there was not a reason to do business, but it wasn't a reason not to do business either. Right. And it made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, we, we were we were the new kids on the block, and we, we paid good rights fees. I mean, yeah. I remember our total budget. Our total budget for the first year was $35 million. Yeah. and because we had... Uh, an infamous thing that some people remember called the square This was the idea that it wasn't a dish, it looked like a bird table. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, it did turn out that it was actually better as a bird table than as a receiving dish. <laughs> and at the end of our first year, we worked out that it would have been cheaper to send all our viewers, put them on a plane and send them to the events that we broadcast than actually actually spend the money on the rights.
0: Yeah, you know, amazing. Great. I love that. That's a great, great warm-up story here. Um, it, was, it was an amazing
1: time. It was an amazing I time. I can
0: imagine. Yeah, and I have to admit that I didn't know the, the link there with your father. That's very cool too. Love that. Um yeah, so let let's get move let's move on then from, you know, I guess the, the early days there, a couple of years with B Sky B um, you know, you ended up with IMG pretty much on the back of it. I think. Well, there's actually sort of a couple of years in between, which I'm not sure where you went. <laughs> but uh, which which one would you consider your next stop?
1: I worked. Uh, I went to work for. Um, it was it was it was bizarre. I was on because I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story. I was in New York uh, on business for B Sky B, and I and to cut a very long story short, British Airways bumped me off my plane. I was coming back, and then they, they ran me up and said, would you like to go on Concorde tomorrow morning? I went, yeah, okay. So I found myself on Concorde, which I thought wow, was great, having nice. just bought a regular British Airways ticket. Yeah. And I found myself next to a man who is now Sir Frank Lowe, uh, who is, without question, uh, a legend of the advertising industry. Yeah, of course. He was a little frustrated about where it was going. So he was the guy behind Stellar Artois doing the tennis tournament, which everyone remembers and remembers the great advertising. But he wanted to grow a sports marketing business. As a result of our plane ride, I ended up going to run his sports marketing business called Orbit. And that's where I spent a lot of time working. And we started up, it, it was called The White Company before, but we, we rebranded it as Orbit. And we had clients like Coca-Cola and Star Artois, worked in Formula One, had a huge amount of fun. And then towards the end of it, we were trying to do a deal to buy CPMA, Alan Callan's business, and represent Rugby World Cup rights. And I couldn't, I was with a guy called Paul Smith, who worked at ISL, who's uh, yeah. Very well-known guy in our industry. You know, Paul. And um, we we just couldn't get this square peg of buying something on future revenues into this round hole of the way into public group for advertising agencies. And it was so frustrating that um, we thought, if we don't get this deal done, we'll never get a big deal done. So I was ready to jump ship. And ironically, I had a breakfast meeting at the Carlton Tower with Ian Todd, who I think everybody knows, who was, uh, you know, McCormack's first employee outside the USA and, and built and ran IMG outside uh, the USA and uh, is a lifelong friend of mine and one of the best operators I've ever met in, in our space. And I met him and he ended up doing the deal for the, for the ring. And he also said uh, two things to me one, come and ride the Amateur Day in the Tour de France, which led to something uh, pretty amazing. And then the other one was, it's ridiculous. IMG has never had a, you know, biggest agency in the world. And we're, we don't, do anything in the biggest sport in the world he said why don't you come and run the football division so I said okay I said well can Paul Smith come with me and he said okay and the two of us went off to really kick start IMG's football division and that's uh, you know that was in 94 and um, we just hit the ground running and, uh, and had an amazing time at IMG it was
0: good fun yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, so the, the part about uh, Frank Lowe and, and Orbit, that's clearly the one I was missing there. But uh, yeah, again, even that part sounds like a lot of fun uh, and the, and uh, I guess several years. Very
1: uh, interesting time, and it, it taught me a lot because we were working with sponsors, and the sponsors were our clients. Yeah. Uh, we did a brawn deal in Formula One, and um, I had a lot of fun and, and learned, learned a lot. There was a guy called Ian White, who many will remember, who was really understood brands and marketing, and it was it was a massive part of my education. Yeah, no, I can imagine. When I got to ing the the football division, I, I couldn't claim the credit for it because in uh, you will you you will remember it well, but the IMG had got out of Hong Kong, which was uh, you know Brett McCormack, and uh, Tom McCorm- uh, Mark McCormack's son was there, yeah. and they they were in the advanced stages of a deal with the Chinese to you know to form the China's the, China, you know, the League, dare I say it. Yeah. The, 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 and, and also, we, at the same time, we launched the Phillips Cup, and it was really replicating the, the league structure that was in the UK, and we'd worked on the Premier League formation, and that was a, a huge success, but it sort of, as you know better than me, it sort of imploded a few years later. Yeah. But at the same time, we were representing the FA and Wembley here in the UK, and those were the two really big projects that got us going. And then we did a lot of federation marketing you know, in India, Argentina, uh, Russia, you know, we sort of replicated the model, you know, around the world and had a really good time. Though Mark was very keen we should get into managing football players, which I really, really didn't want to do and was not my thing at all. Oh,
0: yeah, and, and well, obviously they're representing tons of other players in, in other sports, so that seemed to be an obvious. But they, I don't think they really ever got that deep into it, really.
1: Managing footballers is very different. You know, when you're managing tennis players and golfers, They need a deal every week. They need a hotel every week. They need a flight every week. They need a coach. They need a tax return. And, you know, they have their own passports. They're much, much more complicated and also, in many ways, many more opportunities. And then footballers, it was all about the transfer deals because once they, you know, with a football club, they were an employee. The club had their passport. They told them what bus to get on, where to go, what they would be doing every day of the week. Very different dynamic, but the... But also the whole area of football agents was far, far, far less regulated, or gentlemanly. Yeah, you know, someone like David Falk will tell you about, or Donald Dell, or whatever. The world of tennis and golf is much more civilized. I would say, you know, football transfers to this day is still the wild west.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it As we see different. every time, you know, every every time there is the the trading window is up there for sure. Um, you know, well, we so- were managing.
1: So we did. I did go off and do a deal with some football agents, and we brought them into the family. I, uh,
0: I love it. Yeah, they, I'm sure the football stories are always interesting. I, I had some uh, some player managers on it and amazing stuff. Now, let, let's, oh, well. let's move a bit, uh, you know, a couple of years up then, you know, and uh, all of a sudden we have the dot-com boom era. Uh, era. And uh, and I'm certain, you know, like uh, someone like you said, who said, you know, he looks always at opportunities and finds new things. I'm sure you saw that as well, what was happening. And I know you joined, you know, Sportel um, at that time yeah. uh, in a role here, it says at least a marketing director and, um, you know, and, of course, we've got Rob Hershoff there and, and a few other guys, again, well-known in the industry. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, this was obviously you know, it was an amazing idea, and it went very quickly up and then down, right?
1: It was a lot of fun. At, um, I mean, at, at the end at IMG, I was trying to – I would say I, I had five great years at IMG, but unfortunately I was there for six. So the, <laughs> the last year was very frustrating. Ian Todd had left – um we had started to get you know in the very early days of digital and uh, there was a, a very still a very good friend of mine greg davis who was there mm-hmm. and we had managed to do three what i would call website deals because it was all about websites then yeah. and our first three deals we did were barcelona brazil and manchester united and we had these nice. deals and I, I really felt we should kick on but i Uh, You know, then I did leave because I got the opportunity to go and get involved with Sportal, which was a lot of fun. Rob Herzog, very charismatic, I think was I think was just a brilliant idea, which has been borne out by what has happened since. Mm. But, you know, it it just didn't work in the days of dial up. I mean, there just there just was not the connectivity out there to support the the vision and the ideas that it had that you were going to create this, you know, commercial digital environment for football clubs to interact with their fans, whether it was video or selling merchandise or whatever else it was and all those other things. And I felt that uh, IMG dropped the ball digitally after we left and Sportal was just a great idea, but the shareholders didn't have infinitely deep pockets. And we we were so close to getting it away and selling it. Um, I remember I went... One of the most bizarre meetings of my life, I flew to New York with Rob Herzog, and we had lunch in Rupert Murdoch's private dining room with Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch, and James Murdoch, and Rob, who knew Rupert and had worked for him in a previous life, pitched in the idea of buying Sportal. Right. And it was one of those conversations where after about 10 minutes, I hadn't spoken. I thought, I'm not going to speak here. And then eventually there was an opportunity and then it carried on as a normal lunch. But it was enormous fun watching the three of them interacting, all the four of them, really. Uh, and anyway, and then we then had a real run at selling the business to Canal Plus, Sport Plus, where my great friend Jerome Valt was. Yeah. And. We just, and at the same time, I think Chris Akers had sold his sports internet group for 300 million to That's right. Sky, if you remember. Tony Ball yes, was, was. Yeah, there. And then, you know, then we had the, the collapse of um, NASDAQ and all tech stocks, and, and that was it. The game was over. Yeah. And then it all just sort of. That was really fast. Uh,
0: I, I heard uh, Stephen Nuttall had. A, I was listening to one of his. Uh, he had a podcast with, with, on another podcast here recently, and uh, and he was saying the same thing. He, he basically said, you know, maybe you got it all You were wrong. You were were you missed it by a few weeks. I mean, not just even. Oh, months. it was literally weeks. Yeah, yeah it was literally. Two. John, uh, John
1: Gleesha was there. John Gleesha was there. I high top um right. Steve Nuttall was there. there. There were a lot of fun people. Listen, we had. You know, it was it was a classic dot com boom story yeah. but it, yeah. it was great i mean I, and I, I think ironically i think i think sport or germany i think, still owned by perform or design one of one the other it was, it was always a great brand i mean we i actually flew back from um south africa to negotiate we were negotiating to be the the, the shirt sponsor for manchester united you know it, it just shows how sometimes oh. these things get a bit silly yeah, really yeah. but um and we were we were a sponsor of the Euros, which must have correct. been, um, I suppose we, in the summer of 2000, Euro 2000. Yeah. We we were a sponsor. You guys were running their
0: website, right? And I think that was part of tech. it, right? Uh, that's yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: I mean, yeah uh, listen, it, was <laughs> it was a great time. I had, I had a lot of fun and certainly, and certainly, certainly learned a lot. And, uh,
0: yeah, that's no, you know, an interesting one.
1: But the thing was, I'd always kept my relationship because when when I was at IMG, one of the bigger deals we did towards the end was we had pitched jointly for the Premier League international TV rights. And we had done it as a three-way deal, basically between IMG, um, Sport Plus, which was being run by Jerome Valk as part of Canal Plus, and Ian Frickberg, who was on you know, doing it on behalf of Fox slash news Corp, right, right. And we had that as a, we did that as a four year deal. I want to say 98. And then everybody was very keen to renew it uh, in the, in the next cycle. So that's why Jerome Valk asked me to sort of stay involved with sport and consult with them. So that's what I was doing based in London. And that was good fun. It was quite low key. And then they created Sport 5. You'll yeah. remember, obviously, uh, Sports and Sport Plus and Jean-Claude Darmont, which yes. created this new thing, Sport 5. Yes. And I was worked on the next cycle of the Premier League, and, and I had an agreement with Jerome that if we got that, I would stay on for four years to manage that relationship with the Premier League, which okay. we did. And then um, I couldn't work with and his people Jerome left to go off and on FIFA which is another story and I then had my relationship then became with the with the the guys in Hamburg so Robert right. Muller and Philip Cordes and all those yep. guys that you know yep. very well um, on the phone with Robert earlier. Was, yeah so that was a very happy time, I really liked working with them it was very good I had you know a young family there was very little you know, I I was sort of I just did whatever I wanted to do and I was based in <laughs> London so I I had sort of Six odd years uh, doing that Premier League relationship, little bit of business. Bought a couple of businesses in the UK for for Sport Five. It really enjoyed, really enjoyed working with the German guys, the guys out of Hamburg. They were very good fun, but they, they too were frustrated by the whole Darmont thing and then the Lagadere thing, and it was all, you know. Yeah. That, that's a, you know, another b- very messy Yeah, it,
0: it, exactly. Uh, and actually, Robert has been on the podcast too, and, and we dissected, and he's obviously been there from the start and is still there now, yeah. right? So we literally went yeah. through the entire Sport 5 and then Lugard Air and back to Sport 5 and then, or whatever names that yeah. were in between. And uh, and so yeah, it, it, it's it's a crazy story. Um, so you you had your little fair share of that, um, I guess, as the sort of CEO in the UK, right? That was sort of and an, I guess an international yeah. board member at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah interesting. Um, now. From them, you know, is this already then when you sort of started to, uh, you know, um, have, you know, I guess not the zone, sorry, um, uh, perform, perform, started to show up and emerge on your radar? You know, is that sort of, I guess, coming out of?
1: I'll tell you exactly what happened. Please. There was a team of people in Hamburg and they, they were trying to decide they need they felt they needed to get into the digital production space is that you had these guys in hamburg trading rights and you everybody knows what the business was was you, yep. you were buying rights and federations aggregating those rights the similar thing was happening in france and they felt they had a huge amount of content passing through these organizations but they weren't doing anything to monetize that content beyond licensing it to broadcasters right. so they were trying to say you know what should what should we do we need we need a plan who, and was then the, somebody, who, sorry, who
0: was the group in France? I didn't catch
1: that. Well, obviously that was the, Darman, uh, oh, the you know okay. Jean Claude Darmon okay. bit, and the Sport right, right. Plus, the right, okay. Sport Plus bit. So got they it. were doing what they wanted to do, and they hadn't got the, you know, some some young consultant in Hamburg had written an idea about what they should do. It was just complete complete garbage, <laughs> and uh, and so they said to me, Andrew, would you come up with a plan for what we should do? So I said, okay. And I just went off, and I think three or four months, I just went to see everybody, and I cold called people. And one of the people I cold called was Ollie Slipper, and Ollie Slipper was running premium TV, oh, right. you know, which was which a big fallout of what happened with digital and doing all these crazy deals with uh, with football clubs in the UK. Right. And I went to see him, and I just thought he was such a really good, fun, bright, young guy. And premium TV looked like a good business, but it was owned by the bondholders. It should have gone bust, but it was going along and they were really trying to turn it around and sell it. And obviously I knew Simon Denier as well and everything. And it became clear to me, I pitched to the guys in Germany. I said, if you're going to do a production thing and you want to get into the content space, you can't do it in Paris or Hamburg, you got to do it in London because that's where it's all happening. And that's a logical place to do it. And what I suggest is you buy these two businesses. And the Simon Denyer, who had you know walked out literally of uh, of IMG or TWI and set up um, Inform. Inform, and we know with John Glaser yeah. and Steph Danner and everything, yeah. they they were starting to do things together. Right. So Slipp, Ollie Slipper and Denis, so they knew each other, knew each other. Right. So there was an opportunity to to, to do it. And I, but the problem was that Sport Five, which was owned by Advent then, yeah. was going through a sale process. And they were, you know, the runners. You know, the front runner was probably Lagger there to buy it. So there they were, trying to sell this business for sort of eight hundred, eight hundred fifty million euros. Hmm. And then there's this guy saying, for fifteen million euros, we could buy these two businesses and create a digital content business. And I, I think while they liked the the plan and the rest of it, they, they, they didn't. It was almost irrelevant the numbers and the timing wasn't very good. Right. And I have a very good friend of mine called Michael Lavelle, and we were in the pub in Wimbledon on a Sunday night. He'd been helping with the numbers and how to pitch it and the whole thing. And he said to me, he said, why don't you just do this yourself? So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's a good idea. They sound like great businesses. The numbers make sense. Why don't you do it yourself? And I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, I'm not going to tell you who to ring. He said, just figure it out. I said, okay. And that was a Sunday night. I went home. I went through my database, and I wrote On columns, on a piece of paper, everybody I knew who'd ever done a private equity deal, worked for a bank, sold their business, bought a business, anybody who was relevant. And I started contacting them. And then a, a guy called Ian West, who used to work for Sky and was with Top Up TV or whatever, said to me, go and see a guy called Jörg Mohout. And I got to see him on the Thursday. And he was at Providence Capital. And he was literally packing his office. He was putting everything in cardboard boxes. And I said, so where are you going? He said, I'm going to work for a business called Access Industries. I so I've never heard of it. He said, no, well, it's, a, it's owned by a, a very interesting guy. So I pitched in the idea, and I thought, that's the end of it. Right. He rang me the next day, and he said, right. um, what are we doing Monday morning? And I'm still an employee. So I said, nothing. He said, uh, come and meet Lem Blavatnik. Right. So there I am, eight o'clock in the morning, Monday. York's first meeting. Len's in his tennis kit, having had a tennis lesson, and I pitched him the idea. Right. And he said, "He said well I think that sounds really good. Let's do it.'" <laughs> so I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." I thought, "Well, this will never happen." So I go back and tell the other two boys. I said, "He oh, said yes." Christ, okay. So and it involves <laughs> we've got to buy premium TV, we've got to buy inform. And then we've got to do a deal for me to leave Sport 5 and become executive chairman and all this. And he thought, well, that's a lot of pieces to make work. Yeah. Anyway, it was all it was all seemingly going ahead. And then Len said to me, he said, Oh, by the way, he said, I've got this little sort of investment group. And he told me who was in it. And it was like there was some Indian retail guy, and there was another guy in Thailand who was in tech, and there was somebody else. And also there was Robert Louis Dreyfus. All right. So he said, and he said to me, uh, Robert would like to meet you. Can you go and see him? And I said, yeah, OK. So I get on with Eurostar and I go to Paris and I meet Robert Louis-Dreyfus. And he's everything I was expecting in sort of central casting. He had torn jeans on, no shoes and socks, a <laughs> T-shirt. He had the window shut on the hottest day of the year and he's smoking a cigar. And he had all these trading screens up. And we just started talking about Andrew Craig had just done the deal for one of his Olympic things that he got. It must have been a Winter Olympics because it was 2007 that he'd just got the bid for Vancouver or something. Right. Anyway, off he went. And like two hours later, it was we were still talking about the world of sport and sport politics, and he was absolutely fascinating. A r- really interesting. And obviously, he knew it, and I just thought, God, what an amazing guy. Anyway, but I went home, and the other two boys said this will never work with all these guys. I said, no, it's not going to, because every time we're explaining who we are, we'll have to list these 10 people all over the world, including Robert Louis-Drapers. So I, I had to then go back to Len and say, Len, look, we've got a bit of a problem with that. And he just said, oh, well, don't worry about them. I said, I'll just do it myself. Right. So I went, oh, great. <laughs> so that's, that's how Perform was was created, and we right. bought the yeah. business. So I think he put in, in the end, the, the, the total acquisition cost was, it's close to 25 million pounds. So, right. um, and, uh, and then off we went and we and put the two businesses together. So premium TV and inform became performed right. and off we went and Len was a fantastic shareholder. He, he never actually sat on the board. I don't think I was executive chairman and, uh, and four years later, we IPO that business. Yeah. Yeah, amazing! I love it.
0: Yeah, and you know, and since I mentioned earlier, really we had John on the podcast, so we went really deep in it. So I, I, I won't go into the sort of details of the business because I, and we dissected that pretty well already. But I'd love to hear it a bit more, you know, just for a little bit more. Again, on it from a chairman perspective, right? Because you went listed, then you took it off the listing
1: again. So when we were going to list. Uh, you have to have what I would call a proper chairman because it's a, you're, you're a public company, and therefore you have to have a proper independent chairman. Mm-hmm. So I found a guy called Paul Walker who was a proper chairman, a proper independent chairman to represent the shareholders. Right. And if I had stayed on as a non-exec, then I would be conflicted. So they'd have to get another non-exec, and that's just more money and a bigger board, and that didn't really work. So they just said to me, "Would you stay on as a consultant?" Which suited seems- me anyway. I mean, I was sort of, I wasn't involved in the, you know, Ollie and Simon were joint CEOs and I know that's not universally popular in listed businesses, but you know, they were joined at the hip and were a great team. So it did work in our case. Mm-hmm. So I stepped down and people still amusingly call me the chairman, but I'm, but I'm not. And then after, you know, we floated, you know, at a capitalization of, you know, roughly, you know, 500 million, got it to a billion, and then we had a profits warning, which is a, another story. Right. And I don't think Len ever was particularly comfortable with it being a listed business, and it's not really his thing. So Len took it private again. And right. um, and since then, it has been a business where, you know, give or take, he owns 80, 85% of the business, and he's obviously put debt into the business. So I then just remained as a consultant to what was then perform. It didn't become hadn't become disowned by then. Right. and um, and and just sort of well, I, I'm still a small shareholder in the business. So i I watched it really uh, from the sidelines, but i had I had nothing to do with the uh, the concept or the creation or the implementation of design at all. That was really very much uh, you know simon daniel and 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 Ollie Ollie left as well. Ollie had been done a lot of the work that related to managing investors and shareholders. Ollie's like me, likes a start up, and um, and the rest. Of it. So, so, so Ollie left as well. Uh, remained as a shareholder, and Ollie then stayed on the board of Warner Music. Had a very good relationship, and has a good relationship with Len. So, and that sort of that sort of all carried on. But obviously, it, it, it's a different business now, um, um, because it is it is the zone business, and and Perform obviously got hived off and sold to Vista, so they could merge it with Stats Perform. That's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, there's there's a lot of moving parts there. Um, again, let's stick to it first for maybe a couple of more minutes here before we move on to some of the other interesting stories here of, of what you've done Um you know the business model was perform was a B two B model, and then you're going, you know, with the zone in big time into B two C, uh, which is very different, right? Um, in in a in a completely different challenge, and then of course you know completely. starting off, you uh, know, again sitting. Well, we had in, businesses,
1: we had businesses like um, you know Gold dot com, which were consumer facing businesses. True. So, um, and we knew that, that was part of the business, but it it did make a lot of sense, obviously. Perform was a good old-fashioned profit. You know, it made it made a lot of money. You know, money had a number and you'd apply multiple to it. Uh, zone obviously was going to be a big financial black hole, yeah. and it was going to be a very long game in terms of investment. So they actually didn't. They weren't a very good fit together as two businesses. It made sense to do to do what was done. Right.
0: Okay. Uh, that and yeah, that that makes sense as well. I uh, uh, John didn't, didn't uh, explain it in that way. So, but it, that makes sense as well that it. You know, because you have the diff- the businesses, it's almost a, they don't as much as they complement each other in one way. I guess um, yeah. it also it doesn't create the the duplicating factor isn't there by the in value creation, like like you said, because on one side you you are measuring it on the on the profitability, others is, is a yeah. is a typical internet you know digital business which is not driven by how much money it makes but how it's growing and it's share you know it's it's user base and and you know other other kpis you would set on it so um, yeah i could see that
1: well i remember i remember having a crazy conversation with some banker or private equity guy at one point who said oh, he said if you, if you if you're making profits he said I'm, I'm very strict on how i value you and what i'm allowed to my My latitude is very minimalized because I know what multiples I can apply to EBITDA. But he said, if you don't make money and I'm valuing on a revenue basis, I've got a lot more flexibility. Correct. And I just thought, well, there's the world gone man for a start, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's honestly, it it took me a while. Creatively valuing.
0: Yes. I have some good friends who made themselves fortunes in the in the internet or what they're called internet businesses. And now, of course, we're called digital businesses. And I could never figure it out. None of them were ever making money. I was making money with my businesses and we never had the same valuations. It, it just didn't make any sense to me until I figured it out. And, and now we're sort of you know doing yeah. some of it too. But uh, it, you're right, you rightly said, it's just completely different thinking, right? Uh, and it's almost you have to switch off your whole logic of how you've lo- you been trained to how you make money,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, you certainly, if you were valuing the zone now, you would value it on um, the number of subscribers it's Correct. got, uh, the quality of its technology, and the quality of its, of its rights.
0: Yep, yep. And the gross projectory gross on the back of it. And That's the growth similar. projection,
1: and obviously the cash flow, for example. Yep. I mean, so, Correct. you know, <laughs> when these things become cash positive
0: yeah it's yeah, amazing yeah, i love it yeah so so you are still involved as a consultant till today or or what sort of you see as no, a, I know now you're still a I shareholder am, right said- I said
1: consult with i consult with stats perform now all right and okay. um so i mean I, we we switch my relationship over to there but i'm sort of I, I still obviously i am as a shareholder i'm still connected and i'm still emotionally connected and you know, there's a huge number of my friends there and i still feel very much Part of it, Um, and I guess I always will. So, um, uh, so as and when I can help, if ever there's somebody I can introduce them to, or we can meet, or whatever, I I would always and will always help. But I'm not. I have no formal role at uh, Dazone at all. Got
0: it. Okay, makes sense. Now that, let's talk about a couple of these other roles, which again I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and, and that's where it comes back to what I said earlier, you know, being a chairman, being a consultant was with several other groups here. And I just pick yeah. up one or two here and maybe and, and you tell me which ones are have the best stories attached here. You were we got Play Sports Group, we have TRM, we got the, the Lagio Cycle Slam. I mean, you know, where where do we start here?
1: Oh well, I would say no question. The most interesting of those is Play Sport Group, and Place Sport Group will be known uh, better by its uh, the name, the Global Cycling Network, to um, it, cycling listeners out there. Right. And that was by far the most in- interesting one of those. And, and a very good friend of mine called Simon Ware, who was at Future Publishing and could see the demise of print publishing and the rise of uh, digital publishing and had, um, had bought Cycling News, the website, uh, many years ago when he was at Future Publishing. And he just decided to go it alone. And he, back in sort of 2011, mm-hmm. decided to break away and create a, a digital cycling agency. And the idea was that it would work with cycling brands who didn't know what they should be doing in the, the world of digital, and that would include... Social media, their websites, uh, particularly media buying. You know, they, were just, you know, they just bought print ads in cycling magazines and they bought some ads on Eurosport. They didn't know what they were doing. And his pitch was to go to these people and say to them, I can get you a better bang for your buck and I can get you out there in social media and I can manage that all for you. And they were just picking up clients. And then in about, I guess it must have been about, I'm going to say 2012, um Claude Rubal is, I know, extremely well-known to you and will be well-known to a lot of your listeners. So I was at a conference in London, and there was Claude. Right. So I said, what are you doing, Claude? And he said, oh, I'm just about to join Google. And I said, oh, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to be global head of sport for YouTube. I said, wow, that's a big job. That's cool. And I said, <laughs> what are you going to do? And he said, well, the first thing I'm going to do, he said, we want to create some verticals. I won't do his accent because I will be here a long time. So he said, we're going to create some verticals. I said, well, how's that going to work? So he said, well, what we want to do is, he said, it's all about search and the CPMs are so low. And he said, what we want to do is create destinations, create vertical channels so we can get endemic advertisers and chance premium content. So I said, how are you going to do that? He said, we're going to seed fund some channels. Right. So I said, oh. And, and Claude is a big cyclist and yeah. uh, loves triathlon and... You know, competed in Kona and all the rest of it. I oh, know we, we cycled together and we love cycling. So I said, why don't we do a cycling one? And he said, great idea. He said, uh, how about the Global Cycling Network? And I said, I love it. So I said, so how does it work? He said, well, we're going to seed fund some of these to kickstart them. So I get straight back to Simon. I said, listen, there's a fantastic opportunity here. we got, we got to do this. So we decided to go for it. And to cut the long story short, that YouTube, this, this was sort of autumn. And YouTube decided, yeah, they were going to fund about 80 channels. They had no contract there, no template whatsoever. So we were going to go in and pitch to Europe. We were literally the first people to pitch. Right. And I, we thought, how much should we ask for? And I said 400,000. And Simon said, no, forget that. And he said 1.1 million. I said, we'll never get 1.1 million. <laughs> anyway, so we go in, we asked for it, and they said, sure. okay. <laughs> so, so now... Now, we are, in the end, I'll tell you what happened in the end was that there were about a third of these channels failed, about a third were okay, and a third were really good. And we were in the third that were really good. And what happened was they then sent us the contract for the 1.1 million, and we were the first people to get the the European contract. And it was the worst contract you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it was so onerous. It was just, it was an advance against future advertising revenue. So basically, it was a loan. Right. Um, and they owned all the content in perpetuity, and it just went on and on, and it was such a one-sided, awful contract. I rang Claude, and I said, I said, this contract's insane. He said, listen to me. We we reload. You probably won't get the money, and he said, if you really put up a fight, he said, it'll just drag on forever. So Simon and I said, i tell you what. Look, it's such an awful contract, and we're betting the company. Why don't we just sign it? we'll go back with one comment or two comments and we'll get the money and then we'll see what happens. Right. And he said, he said I think that's right. That's what we'll do. So we, we signed the contract, we got the money and off we went. And they loved, they loved it so much and they loved Simon. And he was in there, I would say, once a week showing other people how to do it. And we created, if you people aren't familiar with it, go and see it, Global Cycling Network. Hmm. And the really clever bit of it was that There were several things. One is that a lot of the content is what we call branded content. So it was paid for by manufacturers. So we got the bike manufacturers, people make tires, helmets, and kit, and tools, and everything. They paid, even though we kept editorial control. But we kept 100% of that money. We only kept 55% of the ad revenue. And the third thing was that we sold. Merchandise, and we sell about 150,000 euros a month of oh, nice. merchandise, cycling kit. Yeah. So it, it had multiple revenue streams. So about a year into it, it was clear that it was going unbelievably well. But YouTube were saying, "Look, we'd rather you made a success of this, and we don't want you to feel that you're, going, you're never going to pay back. You know, the advertising revenue advance. So why don't we just forget the contract?" So the contract was that awful, awful contract, which had never come out of the drawer. Um, we tore it up and threw it away, and then and then we carried on. And we, we grew a really, really clever business. We had the Triathlon Network, the Global Mountain Bike Network, and we just decided – we looked at diversifying into other sports, but we always just said, let's just focus on um, cycling, and we launched in other languages. And then about uh, four years ago um, – we needed another round of investment, and uh, Eurosport Discovery Networks came in and took a 25% stake in the business, yeah. and we kept growing the business, and they loved it. And then, because of their strategy, in early 2019, they bought the uh, they bought the entire business. So I again, uh, that was a time when I stepped down as chair. We didn't need one, and we'd, and that uh, it had been a very very successful investment, a very successful sale. And Simon Ware carried on and, and, and ran that business. But it, it, it's a beautiful case study. Uh, I would say the other thing um, was from day one, if, if we had been dependent on rights, if we had needed rights from RCS or ASO or anybody else, uh, we wouldn't have done it. It was always the idea that we provided the the content that you get on broadcasters. I mean, the coverage of cycling on television is brilliant technically in terms of the coverage of the races, but actually all the ancillary and shoulder coverage is very thin. Right. So we were effectively doing that. Doing. And we always said, so of course, now, because the relationship with you know, Eurosport, we do have uh, rights and projects. And if you're watching, for example, if you're watching the Welter at the moment on, on Eurosport, you'll see it's all co-branded with GCM, GCM presenters. It's right. part of that family.
0: Right, right, right. Got it. You, you guys have now, that was a user-generated content yeah. as well? You, you're using, you're pulling in, you know, you, you know, user-generated content as well from, you know... Anyone who has interesting stories to, to have it as well, or is it really all purpose produced for the for the channel?
1: It, 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 we always said that we would we would generate every single piece of footage, and we would and we would have that. Listen, if if we get race clips or stuff, or somebody sends us, yes, we do occasionally do features, and somebody will send us send us your best clips or whatever. But we always own all the content. We didn't want to ever have to do geo-blocking or any rights clearance or any of that. It's all. It was always 100% of the content was accessible, and we we launched GCN Club and various other things. And uh, you know, now at the moment, you can buy a, a pass via the uh, the GCN app to actually watch live racing because that's all part of discovery. Right.
0: And it's. I mean, it, it, you, if I ever, if I understood it all correctly, you started as a YouTube channel, and is it now still mostly on YouTube, or are you on other platforms yes. too?
1: No, it, it, it's a YouTube channel. The YouTube, the YouTube channel always always worked right. because we needed a mass audience. Because for the for the branded content, we wanted the biggest audience we could we could have. Got it. And um, it never it was never suited to being a linear channel because it's it's not. You know, the content was. All sort, lot of lot of short form content. We would do a weekly magazine show, whatever for half an hour. But you know, you don't want to be scheduling channels. So no, we never, we never wanted to put it on other platforms. Obviously, it's on, you know, it's on the other social media platforms. Mm. But it's not on. There's never been a linear sliding
0: channel. Yeah, oh, great story. It, it makes complete sense, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a fun That's a good one. Um, let's talk a bit about Hawkeye. I um, mean, you were a consultant there for, all, again, for almost 10 years. Um, and, you know, again, great business. Tell what just, happened with Hawkeye was yeah, that. Totally I, um,
1: yeah, I was a When yeah. Hawkeye was owned by Getty, Hawkeye was owned by Getty, and they, they had sort of diversified away from their core business of the photography business. There was a massive interest historically in cricket because of the Getty family. Mm-hmm. And. They had bought uh, Wisdom, which is a sort of the, the almanac, encyclopedia of cycling uh, uh, cricket books. They bought a thing, uh, Willow TV, and they'd also bought Hawkeye. But they now wanted to sell it. And in the sale process, they wanted to know what the prospects were of Hawkeye ever getting into football. And because they just had a monopoly, really, in tennis and cricket, but how did they get into football? Right. So I was asked to give a view on that. They paid me as a consultant. And then the deal was that whoever ended up buying it, if they wanted to keep me, they could. And Sony bought Hawkeye and they asked me to stay on to do that role. And so I was lobbying and my friend, Jerome Valt, was at uh, FIFA. And I was lobbying because nothing could happen without FIFA agreeing to it, no matter how much pressure there was elsewhere. Yeah. I'll tell you exactly what happened is that I was at the World Cup in South Africa, Mm -hmm. and the day before the tournament started, Sepp Blatter had been asked at a press conference, will you ever have technology in football? And the answer was no. It'll always be the same as played on a Sunday morning by amateurs with a referee and a whistle, and we'll never have technology. Okay, fine. (laughs) So you're thinking, well, this is not looking very good. Anyway, so we are... I have gone up to Bloemfontein with Jerome. I was England, there too. Germany. You will remember it. <laughs> yes, I do remember You were there too. <laughs> the I was in the game, Okay, yes. so, okay so five minutes before halftime, the, the goal that never was, Frank Lampard hits the crossbar, Paul goes over the line by yep. about three feet, yep. comes out, my phone explodes with everybody, particularly your friends, Muller, Cordes, all the rest of them. And all <laughs> that, the do you know what the only thing was? The only message I got four numbers, 1966. Yeah, absolutely, 1966. that's They're what I was thinking too. Messages, it was all. Co-
0: yeah, retribution. Well, that's what they all said. 1966.
1: <laughs> exactly. So well, anyway, so then half time, we go into the, the Tribune, and in the Tribune, there was also there was a little mini Tribune, which was Sepp's mini Tribune. He went in there and shut the door, and he didn't come out for the whole of half time. So we're, we're having the whole of half time all of it we watched the rest of the game obviously we we, we got thrashed yep. so the game finishes we go downstairs I get in the motorcade I'm in the back of the car with Jerome and his mobile goes and there's a conversation then in French and then he hangs up and looks at me and says it's done and I said what? he said goal line technology it's done yep. and the really funny thing was or amusing is that? Seth Blatter was very, very fond of telling me the story about, of telling everybody the story right. about 1986, right. and I was bizarrely I was sitting in between my father and Phil Lines. You're we were about the, in the Tribune.
0: You done by the hand of God goal, I'm assuming, when you done that Yes, the game. exactly. Swear, so of it was the
1: hand of God goal, yeah, and yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, we so. were there for that game. And, and Sepp Blatter used to like to tell the story how after the game, my father went to see him, didn't complain, didn't want to replay, accepted that it was what it was, shook Sepp's hand and says, it's been a great tournament, good luck with the rest of the tournament. Right. And so Sepp had liked to quote that as his sort of quote. Right. And of course, right. then we right. then had uh, goal line technology and it, yeah. you know, it just accelerated very quickly. I mean, it was, it was hugely ironic that we didn't get the contract for Brazil. I mean, they gave it to somebody else. Right. But we did get the contract for the Premier League, for Serie A, and now we do do FIFA. And I say we, I'm not involved anymore. Right. Um, and they and still, and still, obviously VAR has come along, and and Hawkeye is doing a huge amount of the VAR as well, though it's not as big a technical challenge. It's more a communications challenge.
0: <laughs> yeah, till today. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and j- just to add my comment to it. Um... I think... Go ahead,
1: say. Yeah, so I think that you know, well, everybody knows that you know, goal line technology is binary. Did the ball cross the line or not? It's it's very simple and it's instantaneous. Yeah. I think mean, VAR still has a long way to go, but um, uh, Infantino, Gianni Infantino was very keen to have it in Moscow or sorry in Russia for the World Cup, and I think they it all happened very quickly. I and mean, my view, I think it should have been tested in a, in some minor or secondary leagues. And so, he, so it really worked out the the protocols for it. Um, but I guess you know it, it's here to stay now. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and you know, again, I mean, being a lifelong football fan myself, um, I, I think the technology has brought mostly positive to the game. I mean. The the controversials were there anyway, right? So and you still have it now with VR and, and you know and probably less with the goal line, as you said, that's fairly clear cut and, and it's just so uh, you know, so you can really see it well, whether it is or whether it crossed or didn't cross. But uh, you know, you still have the discussions in a sense, you're just now debating whether VR was right or wrong, um or other things. Uh, correct. So, exactly. Um, you know, so you still have that bit of that debate. Exactly. Which, so you <laughs> haven't lost that. I exactly. Mean, I think exactly. The, you didn't ever lose that. You
1: no. Know, I mean t- to me it's, you know it should be there to correct a clear mistake. Right. And therefore, I don't think you need twenty replays to know if it was a clear mistake. If it was a clear mistake, you just you can watch you it once at full speed and say, "Oh, that was clearly wrong." Yeah, correct. Yeah, it, exactly. It's not about yeah, somebody's about out. So yeah, it, yeah, it, exactly. That, that
0: that is the part where I still think they need to figure it out. When we're really dealing with millimeters or or like you know whatever yeah. you know, sort of that's barely enough. offside with a with You've a like I with a toe, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah that, that is a bit crazy. I that's guess crazy. You, I guess you
1: don't watch a lot of cricket, but in cricket they have what's called umpires' call, which is. Is that they go with the decision of if the um, if the ball is sort of half hitting the stumps, they go with the decision that the umpire made on the field. Right. So therefore, they still stick with the umpire. So what they're basically saying, umpires call cool, it was the same in football. It would be if the if the if the offside is very very close, you go with the original decision that the linesman or the official made. Hmm. But anyway,
0: they'll figure it out. Yeah, I'm German. That uh, cricket is a, is another game altogether. I'm exactly. aware. <laughs> Good stuff. Now I love this. Uh, it's funny that we were there at the same time. Uh, I was there with my dad and my ten year old son at that time. It was oh, amazing. there you go. That's amazing, isn't it? It was, yeah. um, it's funny, it's a funny little side story to it. So of course, well, I tell you also.
1: Not only was I in '86, uh, England, Argentina. I, my father took. I think the first game he took me to. Long before he got involved with the FA, I I, I was at England Argentina in '66 when uh, Antonio Rattan got sent off. So I've done, I think I've done every England Argentina game since 1966. Anyway,
0: there we go. Yeah, amazing. Uh, Well, hopefully we'll see each other at the next World Cup. I've been to every World Cup since 1994. So that's my little, that's my favorite uh, sporting event to hang out uh, and uh, always great. I agree with that. That's incredible. So, um, look, this is also kind of gets us a little bit nicely to you know maybe a, a bit of the finish line here. And but I you know definitely want to talk a bit about Oakwell Sports Advisory again another chairman yeah. role, chairman of the advisory board. Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit about it. What is Oakwell up to, and 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 what you
1: do? What you what is your role? Well, being chairman of the advisory board is extremely pleasant because you don't have to get involved in anything to do with actually running the business on a day-to-day basis or governance in any way at all. And uh, they are two um, very, very good guys, Umbers, Doug Harmer, and they from are from a financial background and they're both uh, city financial trained. Um, uh, Doug used to work, at, uh, was at Wasps. Andrew Umbers was responsible for... Uh, buying Leeds United for Cellini and then selling it to uh, yeah. Andrea um, and and they really are an interface between private equity, institutional money and sports rights holders and are very very good at understanding and analyzing uh, the rights environment, the commercial environment and strategizing uh, in that world where finance is meeting sport which is increasingly, uh, the way the world is going. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you'll remember. I certainly remember that when when I was, you know, ING in the nineties, there, there were no, there were really no capital markets, or nobody IPO'd anything. It, it was a different world yeah. then. You know, it was agencies. You know, and it was it was ISL, it was ING, it was ProServ, it was all of that. Yeah. And I think that old agency model is. Dead, really. I, 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 nobody would ever start an agency in the image of any of those again, because right, right. it's just that, that's just not what's going to happen. I mean, you, you know, you look at sort of, you know, like the Dizone joint venture with the WTA, or what Discovery are doing with PGA Golf, all these things, and people now, and you know, and these deals that they're trying, out the CDC deals, uh, Bridgepoint deals. Um, it, it is a brave new world, and a lot of people are trying to navigate that, and I think a lot of what's happened in the last two years has accelerated people's thinking because people have got themselves in a big financial mess. And it has accelerated people's thinking about, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to navigate this? And there are lots and lots of financial solutions. You know, private equity is not the answer to every question. Everybody knows that there are, you know, whether it's debt finance or securitization or short-term debt or long-term debt, there's lots of different ways of solving your financial problems beyond private equity right. you know you know bundesliga with their international rights thinking yeah, that they, they want to sell it you No, know, oh, there are plenty of good, is that, good examples is that, is or... that does it make any sense i mean i think you know i always think you can't sell these rights twice and you know you i mean there are some extraordinary deals people trying to put out there
0: Absolutely, yeah. You know, and, and CVC clearly is at the front end of it. Uh, Silver Lake is, you know, is, is the only you hear about um, things they're doing, and um, and then a few others. Um, you know, and, and 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 it is an exciting space. So Oakwell is as as an advisory. Which side do you guys advise the the, the uh, private equity guys so, or so, both sides? Okay. Yes, absolutely.
1: Sometimes we're paid by private equity. Sometimes we're paid by the federations or the rights holders yeah. All right. and and broadcasters as well. Right. I mean, I think I I see broadcasters. I was talking to a UK rights holder the other day and saying why would I want to do a deal with private equity wouldn't it be more logical for me to do a deal with a broadcaster who's actually got some skin in the game here who actually is invested in our sport but where they want to have a long term position in the sport I mean you know private equity you know they're in it to make money they're in it to get out of it Right? I mean, you know, they're not in it because it's in their DNA yeah. I mean it might be sport today. It could be tin salmon tomorrow. I mean, it's, you know, there's not, it's, they're not, they're not being benevolent here. I mean, they are, you know, you you can cut this out if you like, you know, what's the difference between a venture capitalist and a sperm? And the answer is a sperm has got a one in a million chance of being a human being. They're not, these are hard nosed financial people who are doing it for a good financial return. And if they can make, if they make 6% on a sports deal, but they can make seven on a deal to do with recycling, waste management, they'll do the recycling and waste management deal. Absolutely. They're not, you know, it's, I mean, yeah, to it, me, it, it, It's, I, it's it, probably
0: a bit harsh, <laughs> but in, and as usual, they, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, some folks from that industry listening to us uh, will go, wow, oh, that's rubbish, but.
1: Um, I love them all, and they're lovely people, but they, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's true, you know I mean? That, that you have to. That's what they do, and that's why they're very, very good at what they do. I think they do bring a huge amount of discipline to the process. I remember talking to one Syrian club chief executive. I said, well, you know, "Why would you want to have private equity involved in managing your commercial rights? Why would you want to give anything away?" And he said, "Because we can't do it ourselves. We just, we just don't trust ourselves. We need the discipline that they bring. Of it being structured, process, management, all the rest of it." So I said, "Well." Do you think they will bring the right management skills and all this? And he said, "Well, that's another question." But listen, yeah, I, I think a lot of people saw, have seen what Bridgepoint have done in MotoGP, yeah. what and um, Redona and what um, CVC have done in Formula One, and said okay. it can be incredibly successful. I would say there's a lot, lot more moving parts in uh, the conventional team sports. I would say, and that's. It's more complicated, much more complicated. You know, the politics of it, um, the sustainability of it, it's simply, they're quite different. And I'm not saying it's a honeymoon period what happened with those sports, but be interested to see what is the next big success story. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I think I think we're all watching it very closely. Um, and as t- coming back to our very big, uh, the, the conversation we had before the call, um, you know, which I mentioned that we're working on something which goes in that direction, which shall remain yeah. still nameless. Uh, but that is the idea is exactly this. It's bringing a different type of funding opportunity to IP owners, to rights holders, which doesn't have quite the same um, maybe handcuffs which comes with the with the private equity side of it, uh, but provides that same sort of money um, and brings very smart people along uh, on the right there, and I think that is a in my view it's a great combo as well as something which is, doesn't quite exist in the industry as far as we've yeah. seen on our research. I, and, and I, I
1: think that, I mean for many years it was a given that you know that, that rights TV rights and media rights were going to just keep going up and and is it going to be the same with data rights? But you can't make that assumption. The idea that everything is just guaranteed going to keep going up is 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 naive. Correct. The fact is that you know the next generation are consuming media in a different way, in shorter forms. The linear channels are disappearing. You know, you, you look at the price point for DAZN of you know 10 euros a month around the world compared to. You know, Sky TV wanted to charge you eighty or ninety pounds a month. It's it's a different financial dynamic, and there's different ways of you know. And it's not as simple as thinking you know the rights will keep going up. I mean, you know, the farce of the European Super League. I mean, who the hell was telling those guys those TV numbers? Because it was just a, a joke. I mean, you you just sort of think oh automatically oh we will make you know we will make this much money per game. Well, why? Right. I mean, it, it, it's, and, and you know, it's, I'm sorry, this is, this is the other one. You know, what's the definition of a consultant is someone who knows everything about sex, but doesn't know any women. And you have people advising you on <laughs> what your TV rights are worth, who actually have never sold any TV rights. Done a so TV they don't. in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. You know, why, why would I believe some consultant or some bloke at JP Morgan who tells me what my TV rights are worth? Have you ever sold TV rights? Do you know what's actually going on in the market at the moment? Right. It was like when I looked round at, you know, I was talking to John Gleeser about Bundesliga rights. You'd say, well, you know, actually, do people actually know what's going on? You know, the Bundesliga's probably got a very good deal in Japan, very good deal in the States. Poland is all about Lewandowski. And then you a few other things. You go, actually, so... So Bundesliga is definitely going to keep going up, is it? And the answer is you don't know. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and, and look what happened in the Middle East, right? Some of the big yeah, deals got well, there. Exactly. And at look at China. Exactly. They kicked a few out, right? Um, and those yeah. are large numbers, which are not as simple just to no. make up.
1: Those are all the big deals and all the big markets. So have we named one market where it's actually going through the roof? The answer is no. And I think that I think the market's going to get polarized, the things that you have to have and the things that it's quite nice to have. Hmm. And Absolutely. if you get away from linear channels where you don't need to fill up your airtime with lots of rights, you'll just say, "Well, I'll just stick with the stuff I really need." Yeah.
0: And this is sort of how we look at it as well. What we're really saying with was with, with what we're building there is that we're saying, "Look, we we rights will go up, I think, in the long run, but they will show. Uh, you know, there there could be dips and and." There will be new technology, whether it's OTT or other things um, which you need to deploy. There's new ways of monetization, let's say, if you look at NFTs and things like this. Um, so you have to be a lot more creative. And, and just assuming that a broadcaster writes a check or an agency comes along and gives you a nice big fat guarantee, uh, those days are over. Uh, and I think that's what you know IP owners need to be conscious of. That
1: is, that is ancient history. I mean, Absolutely. writing guarantees. I mean, it's exactly. just... I mean, in the old days, the, the good thing about writing a guarantee was that they also gave you the rights and you got all the warranties that you needed. It was a two way street. And the number of times that the guarantee never got signed because they couldn't deliver the guarantee on the other side, it often worked It worked the other way. Correct. So, um, anyway, who knows? Yeah,
0: yeah, no, it's, it's exactly. We've seen all the risk and, and what happened with agencies or, or, or IP That's owners. Exactly. If you look at the you know ISL, how they destroyed themselves, right? Um, crazy. But uh, yeah. Well, I, like to, I think it goes
1: back to isl to me goes back to the nub of 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 the agency business which is the agency i always thought sports agencies were like advertising agencies you can have all the contracts you liked in the draw but in the end it's about the people did you have good people did you have the best people because if you haven't you, you know agencies have to reinvent themselves all the time because the better job you do the more likely you are to get fired by the client they then don't need the guarantee because they say we can do it ourselves and all our sponsors will renew. Yeah. So you've got to have the best creative people out there going out, coming up with new ways to make money, new ways to do deals, and all the rest of it. And I think that, I mean, ISL was the classic. They had mm-hmm. the best people, and they and they let them all go. Yeah, yeah. They went and off and did other things. You know, I, I like you said, it, it, makes
0: me, it makes me feel a little better, you know, because if I look back at 20 years now of TSA here, how many times we worked ourselves out of a job um, whether it was was WWE no <laughs> or whether it was was US Open tennis or badminton or you name it. It was always the same story, like you just said, and it's funny enough when I, during those times when it happens, it's not how you look at it, right? You are upset, you are pissed off, because you know, you're building it all up, and then someone comes along, or or you know, uh, the, the 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 rights holder takes it in house. Uh, but if you now, you know, looking at back in the way you just re- referring to it, yeah, it's just what it is. That's literally the life cycle. What I guess an agent's supposed to do, right? You help bring it up, yeah. and then. Either someone bigger comes along, or you know, or they take it in house, and and so uh, yeah, it's it is that is the game they play. We all or we all played <laughs> to some degree.
1: Uh, uh, no, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely true, and, and I think that you know, it's sort of it's an end of an era of you know, many of them many of them are on your podcasts Of it's a whole generation of people who've um, were in the business that we all grew up with, and you know, who have all retired or partly retired or sort of now on the fringes of it. I mean, you know, many of my contemporaries are just, we're just not in the front line of the business anymore. We, you know, we, we love doing our things that we do, but we don't go to the office every day.
0: No, absolutely, and I think, but I do think when you when you look at the agencies which are still there, whether it's you know the biggest level with IMG or Endeavor now or Sport Five, of course, you know they are truly reinventing themselves, right? Many are also going into other areas, from esports to gaming, which of course is you know it's, there is similarities, and therefore there are some of the skill yeah. sets you can transfer over. Uh, massively booming space and, and exciting in many ways, and we're doing that as well, and you know so then you bring a bit of crypto in with the NFT space, so you know there is. Always new things.
1: Well, this is the problem, Mark. Because my, my view was I would never have to learn anything new, and then suddenly I have to learn what a SPAC is, and then I have to learn what an <laughs> NFT. There'll be something else next week, and I go, oh, God, what, what the hell does this mean? And uh, you know, it, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? it? It's it's a little bit crazy at the moment. But there we go. Yeah, well, that, that keeps us young, right? So, Andrew, this is fun. Yeah, I mean, I, really. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think the great thing the great thing about our business is that nobody ever wants to retire from this business because it's too much fun Absolutely. and you know I think of all the all the events I've been to over over the years and all the people that I've met you would never walk away from that because it's the most fun and I, I think that's what I've missed the last two years without any question it's actually just getting on a plane and going to events and yeah. whether it's you know everything you know whether it's a Lions tour or whether it's the Olympics or whatever it is you know you just know how great like you and your your father and your son in Bloomfontein, you know, it's the best thing you'll ever do. I mean, I took my son to the, the, the German World Cup, we went to a game a day for 14 days, and wow. he was like 12 Ew. years old. We just, it was just, you know, life experience. Absolutely. And, and you know, in the last two years, we haven't had that. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. I think we all miss that, and, and we you know we you know, can't wait for the doors to properly be back open. And, and somewhere are right? I mean, if I look at it, the UK, the, the yeah. stadiums are full. Uh, scares me a little bit, to have to admit, when I see it. No, uh, uh, we, are,
1: we, are, we are back fully up and running. I mean, it, it it's still very tough, I think, for the athletes because the athletes are still having to protect themselves in a bubble. It's putting pressure on their families and the rest of it. Right. Uh, whereas we are all just now going back to games. Yeah, I mean, right. we've got full stadium and ostensibly it's it's normal.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let, Let's knock on wood. It all goes that well. There. Yeah, yeah,
1: but anyway.
0: Yeah. Andrew, that was a lot of fun here. I really enjoyed this. Oh, I fine. think we're almost got a got almost an hour and a half in here. Which uh, great stories, lots of uh, amazing history in the world of sports and and the roles you played. And as I said, as the chairman in many cases. So uh, clearly, uh, that is the role, and I'm sure you'll you'll be having many of those coming. Here. So thank you for your time, and I'm sure we'll talk some more.
1: Absolute
0: pleasure. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.